My name's Will DeFreeze, and this is the Sunday Scaries Podcast, your cure for the Sunday blues. What are your coping mechanisms? And no, I'm not just talking about lighting a scented candle or frothing your milk in the morning. Think about a time you were angry, really angry, and then think about what made you feel better. For pretty much my entire life, I never handled those negative emotions very well. Anger, sadness, loneliness, whatever it may be. Rather than ever doing something about it, to, about feeling a certain way, I'd simply let those emotions marinate, which in return caused those emotions to really never go away. The side effects of handling adversity like this began to run rampant for me. I'd complain to friends or family who have other things going on in their life. I'd allow my brain to go down wormholes, further stressing myself out about possible scenarios that I'd make up in my head. It was an unhealthy cycle, but not one I was necessarily willing to break, mainly because I didn't really see an issue with it because I wasn't that self-aware. It wasn't until I got engaged that I sat down and actually understood what my natural way of dealing with stress is, at least in the immediate wake up of feeling that stress. When we sat down for premarital counseling, we ran through a scenario that I don't think I put too much stock into. When asked what I did when I felt overwhelmed or angry, I hesitated to answer, mainly because I didn't have a really good answer for it. It was something that I hadn't really thought through before, so I blurted out the first answer that came to mind. Uh, I just kind of start cleaning. Our therapist laughed, but not in a judgy way. I think she was actually expecting an emotionally driven answer rather than an answer that simple, but honestly, it couldn't be more true. Whether it's due to work, a personal relationship, or simply finding yourself in some shitty circumstances, we all have our moments. Those moments when you're hot-headed, you lose control a bit and fly off the handle, you need to be held accountable for your actions, but you aren't really acting accordingly. Think back on these moments. I have a very specific memory of the immediate aftermath, even if I don't remember what caused the strife in the first place. It feels weird to say this, but those moments don't just live in my head, but they also live in my kitchen. I think we can all agree that there are three places in every house or apartment that need cleaning or organizing the most. Kitchens, bathrooms, and closets. For me, the kitchen is my de facto panic room when it's not Sunday night. With emotions running through me, I burst into my kitchen like a bat out of hell. What I normally see usually sets me into a frenzy. Dirty dishes in the sink, a cast iron pan sitting on the stove that hasn't been cleaned in over a week, crusted parts of dinner's past on the counter, random herbs and spices left out from the night before, an opened half bottle of wine that definitely needs to be poured out because it's been open for way too long, even a stack of dirty rags that will do more harm than good if they're used. And with no method to my mayhem, I go to work. Slamming open the dishwasher, I, still, I start filling it with everything that's been ignored over the past few days. Visions of chipped plates and bowls go through my head, but I'll confront those later because I simply don't care. The spray bottle of our cleaning solution has never felt the might of my hand squeezing it and spray it all over the countertops like it has before. I can feel the stress pouring out of me as I channel my inner karate kid. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. With the cupboards wide open, I start shoving anything and everything into them in hopes of achieving the absolute dream. Clean countertops with absolutely no clutter. In what feels like an hour-long therapy session, that 15 minutes of pure, unabashed cleaning takes me from being frantic to actually seeing somewhat clearly. I've always had a theory as to why this is so therapeutic for me, but it's related to something completely different, which is shoveling snow. As a kid, I absolutely hated when my dad would force me to do it. Most of the time, I'd ignore his request because getting lectured was actually better than doing the work that he asked me to do. But the older I got, the more I actually did start enjoying it more. At the root of it, yes, shoveling snow is pretty miserable sometimes. The cold, the toll that it takes on your back, and well, yeah, just the cold. 
But one of the most satisfying feelings in the world is looking back at everything you just shoveled and seeing a blank canvas behind you. There's something so gratifying about seeing the immediate dividends of a task that you just completed. With a clean sidewalk, driveway, or path behind you, you know the actual work is literally behind you. Everything you just carved out was done by you and only you. And I think the same principles go with, into my fervor for stress cleaning. Knowing that I can't be the only one out there who feels this way, I decided to look up the actual benefits of an act I've unknowingly done for years now. And what I found was fairly unsurprising. Good Housekeeping uh, wrote an article why cleaning helps anxiety, and it seemed to spell it out pretty perfectly. In one passage they said, there's some science behind the connection between cleaning and decreased anxiety as well. A small study published in the journal Mindfulness found that participants who engaged in mindful washing the dishes, meaning they took a moment to inhale the scent of the soap to allow their skin to absorb the warmth of the water, they reported a 27% reduction in nervousness, along with a 25% improvement in mental inspiration. Alicia H. Clark, a licensed clinical psychologist who was interviewed for this article, noted that healthy anxiety, which is anxiety that's not debilitating or stands in the way of one's daily responsibilities, is a normal emotion that can be beneficial. She said, it grabs our attention to the things that we care about the most. It's energy being generated without an outlet. Anxiety can cause a lot of angst and unsettled feelings, yet it's supposed to be motivating. In our minds, we view clutter as unfinished business, and this lack of completeness is unsettling and stressful to the people, she finally concluded. As for me, I don't really see this habit ending anytime soon for myself. And honestly, I kind of hope it never goes away. Too often, I think anxiety or stress, of it's just something that's been debilitating, but it's not always like that. Sometimes you're just angry and you just need to go do something to take your mind off of it. But if I can channel that, that feeling into something productive, it's just a win-win for everybody involved. My only concern regarding this form of therapy for myself, well, I think the more my now wife understands that's, that that's how I cope, I fear that she'll start small fights with me just so she doesn't have to clean off that knife with peanut butter that's been sitting in the sink for the past 12 hours. But if that's what I have to do to get my mind right, so be it. This week's episode is presented by First Leaf. As we all know, trying different wine is one of the best ways to find new favorites. Yet sometimes buying wine I've never heard of before or heard of doesn't really pay off, literally. I've bought several bottles of wine in the past because it's a style of wine that I like or a brand that's kind of recognizable. And then when I taste it, I think to myself, why did I spend the extra few dollars on this just because I heard that somebody else likes it? I'm not a wine expert, so I can't act like one. And therefore, I always find myself kind of being in this in-between phase. But having a First Leaf Wine Club membership is like having a VIP in the world of wine. I can discover top-rated wine that I love at an exclusive discounted cost with practically zero effort. First Leaf is a wine club that sends personalized selections of wine from top vineyards around the world right to your door. Every bottle is handpicked by experts with your exact preferences and palate in mind with no more guesswork or letdowns. And you'll get an incredible wine at much lower prices. First Leaf works directly with world-class winemakers, saving you up to 60% off retail on award-winning wine. That's a lot. Unlike other wine clubs, First Leaf uses an algorithm and your feedback to curate your future wine recommendations, which means shipments only get better. After my first experience with First Leaf, I went online to my account and I, I reviewed the wines that I liked and that I didn't like. And there were a lot of highlights to this. The convenience, the varietals of wine, the excitement of unboxing and tasting the wine. All of this added up into an experience that I could really hone in on and really find the wines that I like. Uh, when I first opened up First Leaf for the first time, I, was, I saw six bottles of wine that I thought, huh, 
I probably wouldn't have bought these at the store, but because of the discounts that First Leaf offers, yeah, I'm absolutely into this. They pair perfectly with great home-cooked meals, takeout, or even just having a glass after a long day and unwinding on the couch. Discover new wine like a VIP by becoming a First Leaf member. Join today and you'll get six bottles of wine for just $29.95 and free shipping. Just go to tryfirstleaf.com slash scaries. That's six bottles of wine for $29.95 and free shipping at tryfirstleaf.com slash scaries. You wake up and you look at your iPhone. You've given yourself a buffer for a few snoozes, but you know you need to start your morning routine sooner than later. When you finally drag yourself out of bed and walk into the bathroom, you have pillow creases on your face, greasy hair sticking up from the back of your head, and maybe, maybe even a lingering hangover from the bottle of wine that's still sitting on your kitchen island. There was a familiarity to our weekday morning routine, waking up later than we want to, only to rush into work yet again. That rush, but I know it's my fault feeling that you vow to correct week after week, it just kind of lingers. But over the past year, things have changed for a lot of us. Our alarms are going off a little bit later, the thought of drinking coffee from an office Keurig is just downright depressing, and we've all fallen a little behind on our favorite podcast because our commutes have evaporated. Nearly 42% of the workforce worked remotely throughout last year, and around 27% will do the same through this year. Work from home is here to stay, and for that reason, I present to you the Ten Commandments of Working from Home. The first one, thou shall shower every morning. This is the most important commandment for me. And for those of you who did indeed shower every morning before they stopped going to the office, this one's probably important for you. Without showering, you never really get your motor running in the morning. You remain in morning mode, which I put in quotes, and it can linger until lunch if you're not careful. And I think you know what morning mode is when I mention that. Sitting on the couch with your laptop open, dirty clothes on from the night before, thinking to yourself, man, I should probably take a shower sooner than later. You eliminate all laziness by fighting that final snooze and rinsing off, and you'll thank yourself when you've got that extra time around lunch because you don't have to take a shower. Number two, thou shalt not turn off the television. This is a rule I had to implement for myself while between offices at a previous employer. I found myself feeling like a kid who got to stay home from school in the morning. Sports center, the price is right, only get distracted and turn everything off once the soaps come on. While I never felt like I was intently watching anything on the screen, I found myself being taken out of my work by terrible takes from Skip Bayless or someone getting to play Plinko, which is the most exciting thing in The Price is Right history. Distraction aside, however, this is simply a must-to-avoid trouble. Your superior seeing sports in the reflection of your glasses, your eyes glazing over while mid-meeting only to get called out, or the dreaded, are you watching something from the, that coworker who you just kind of hate? No thank you. Morning and daytime television leave a lot to be desired anyway, so get your work done early so you can coast through the afternoon. Number three, thou shall set up a workstation. Walking by a mirror recently, I caught my reflection, but only briefly. I wasn't really checking myself out, nor was I intending to look at myself in the first place. It was quite the opposite, actually, because my main takeaway was that my posture was absolutely awful. Despite writing these commandments, I don't always obey these commandments. I'm, I'm not too big to, to admit that. And this one in particular resonates a lot with me. If I'm working from home, which I do about 50% of the time these days, I spend my time in three places. 40% of the time I'm writing in bed, 50% of the time I'm hunched over on my couch, and the other 10% of the time I'm sitting on a stool at my kitchen island. And while my dog loves those spots because she can nuzzle next to me, I can already see myself at the age of 55 cursing my younger self. Posture aside, the other benefits are pretty compelling as well. The additional productivity of having a quiet designated spot the mindset of knowing that when you're at your workspace, you're only there to work, 
And even having work reminders like notepads or cords around can, you know, really diminish your mental health when you're just sitting somewhere where you normally, normally relax instead of working. But in case no one else has reminded you today, sit up straight, like right now. I can tell that you're hunching over even though I can't even see you. Number four, embrace thy inner grammar Nazi. An old colleague of mine used to do his best to spend as much time away from the office as possible. This wasn't an endearing quality as much as it was annoying for the rest of us. Knowing we are probably not on board with his regular and unnecessary jaunts, I began to notice a tell in his communication. At this time, we communicated almost 100% via Slack, which is the AOL instant messenger of the corporate world. When I could see himself typing to me in the office, his grammar was like a teenage girl on Twitter, all lowercase, terrible grammar and incomplete thoughts. I guess that's actually kind of like what I'm like on Twitter, but that's neither here nor there. When he was out of the office and definitely not working from home, he'd chat with me and our other coworkers through the Slack app on his phone. The only issue is that his grammar went from being downright horrible to being auto-corrected into oblivion by his iPhone. And while he fooled others, the grammar Nazi inside of me will always remember to type in a consistent manner, whether I'm in the office, at home, or sitting at a bar with a lunch beer in front of me. If you go from one good grammar to bad grammar, people are gonna know that you're probably doing something you shouldn't be doing. Number five. Thou shall establish precise working hours. Dolly Parton criticized the white collar work week by saying nine to five, what a way to make a living, pretty much sarcastically. Unfortunately for a lot of us, we really don't have much of a choice. But just because you're no longer driving to and from work every, way, every day doesn't mean that you have to make up for that newfound free time by putting in an extra hours. Too often I found myself bored in the morning only to open my laptop hours before I need to in order to get some work done. Some days I'll be so into a task that I won't look up for my laptop until it's past dinner time and I've got an empty refrigerator, which means I just have to starve for the night. If you're working from home, there's a decent chance you're a salaried employee. Know what your time is worth and stick to a schedule. With the amount of free time that's been forced upon you, imagine the possibilities. A new workout routine, a side hustle, even a much deserved nap. Clocking out at five isn't sticking it to the man as much as working free overtime is sticking it to yourself. Just remember that. Number six. Thou shall unplug regularly. Do I miss working in an office all day, every day? No, definitely not. But there are certain aspects of it that I look fondly upon. Of course there are. I mean, it's just natural. Those pointless yet fun conversations that take place 10 minutes before a meeting begins, running out to grab a coffee even though you don't really need one, you just want to get away, or scheduling a conference room, not to work, but just to sit with a couple people that you don't hate in your office. With the solitude of your apartment or home office, it, it is welcome at times, you miss those pointless interactions that make the day breeze by. Whether you're letting your dog out for an extra 15 minutes or doing a quick meditation, don't shy away from stepping away from the screen just for a few, especially when you don't have anything on your calendar. But just make sure you actually do have something on your calendar, like a fake meeting so no one bugs you. Number seven, thou shalt take sick and or vacation days. In that same breath of unplugging for a small amount of time, Make sure you're still unplugging for those large portions of time as well. The only thing I hate more than sick people in an office is people who don't use their vacation days, and my mindset doesn't change if you're working from home. It's more important than ever to take care of your physical and mental health, so use your allotted days before it's too late. Just don't use them for hangovers. That's really soft. Number eight, take advantage of thy alone time. That is, if you're lucky, if you're lucky enough to have alone time in the first place. My wife's schedule means that I pretty much have every morning to myself. While this sometimes stunts my productivity, it also helps me allow me to get that much needed me time and that alone time where I can focus and actually do stuff. I recently spoke with a friend who, like a lot of us, didn't have any baking knowledge beyond what he learned from the Great British Baking Show. And now, with his free time, he's making enough bread in his apartment to start a bakery. 
So rather than watching TV or playing Call of Duty, he took those spare moments throughout the day and channeled them into an actual skill. While I've spent my additional time trying to reestablish a workout routine, having the constant smell of fresh sourdough in my apartment, it doesn't sound like the worst thing. Number nine, honor thy work spouse. I discussed work spouses a few episodes ago, but that doesn't mean that they should be omitted from the conversation today. While the in-office drama likely isn't reaching the levels that it used to, you still need that confidant within the organization to reassure you that you're not going insane and that everyone else is kind of insane. Whether you're having a weekly virtual happy hour or simply side texting them to talk shit about your superiors, just make sure they know that you're there for them. Just be careful doing that on Slack. I've always had this weird theory that those messages can be read by anyone, especially the, the, the admins. Whether or not that's true, I'm not really sure. But if you know the answer, please hit me up. And number 10, embrace the panic room mentality. Just because it's not Sunday doesn't mean you can't relax. Turn the lights down low, light a scented candle, pour an extra large ice water, toss on that chunky sweater. Replace the days of freezing cold offices and fluorescent lights with elastic waistbands and jazz playing through your speakers. Just make sure to trim the wicks on your scented candles before any of your coworkers judge you. They might not, but if I'm in your organization, I definitely will. This week's episode is also brought to you by Honey. We all shop online, and we've all seen that promo code field taunt us at checkout. But thanks to Honey, manually entering and searching for coupons is a thing of the past. Honey is a free browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. Honey supports over 30,000 stores online, and they range from sites that have tech and gaming products to popular fashion brands and even food delivery. Imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites. When you check out, the Honey button drops down and all you have to do is click Apply Coupons. Wait a few seconds as Honey searches for coupons and it, that it can find for the site. And if Honey finds the working coupon, you'll just watch the prices drop. It's truly amazing. Honey has saved me money on pretty much everything I've bought online over the past few years. I actually used this before they were a sponsor for this podcast. When I was searching for clothing and accessories to get dressed for my wedding, those were purchases that I normally don't make and those are purchases that are much larger than, than pretty much any purchase that I've ever done when it comes to clothes or accessories. And luckily for me, Honey was a savior. Not only did I save 40% on my tuxedo, but I even got a deal on my suspenders and my shoes. I saved, I saved more money that allowed me to not have as much financial stress, especially at a time of planning a wedding when stress is at an all-time high. Honey has found its over 17 million members, over $2 billion in savings. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in just a few seconds, and by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com scaries. That's joinhoney.com scaries. There was a time in my life when I wrote under a pen name. It was, in fact, Sunday Scaries. During that time in my life, I had a small audience of about 15 to 25 clicks per column. My writing was unpolished, unedited, and most of all, pretty unhinged. Having saved some of my old columns, I now reread them thinking about how naive the person writing them was at the time. I don't necessarily blame that person for what they wrote, but the immaturity definitely shows through more than not. As Sunday Scaries, both the moniker and the website, began to gain steam, I felt an increasing amount of pressure to use my real name. This wasn't because I wanted internet cloud or anything like that, but more because I wanted there to be some responsibility behind the things that I was saying. That brief period of my life, it was the only time I hid behind a name that wasn't my own while talking about things on the internet. Once I finally went from Sunday Scaries to Will to Freeze, it became increasingly evident that writing under your own name carried a weight that I hadn't really considered before. 
Criticisms I wrote could easily become targeted attacks. Bad takes yielded direct consequences. And guilt would overcome me if I said something that I wish I hadn't. In life, and especially on the internet, we all say things that we don't mean at times. Whether you're fumbling over your words, something just came out wrong, or you simply didn't think something through, that moment of regret washes over you, and it's a very, very familiar feeling. In person, you can apologize or you can talk something out relatively easily. Online, you risk getting screenshot or ratioed into oblivion. From the first day I decided to start writing online, I knew there would be accountability in the form of readers and commenters. Whether it was something as complex as a column or as simple as a tweet, that accountability never really goes away as long as you keep putting yourself out there. At times, of course, yes, it's very scary. But when things are going well, you feel very supported and even reinvigorated. You coast along riding the high of people enjoying your work. It's fulfilling, gratifying, and something you take for granted. When things, when things aren't going well, however, you find yourself feeling pretty damn alone. Whether it's a well-thought-out response or just a passing negative comment, your mind tends to harp on those negative more than the positives. It's that whole vocal minority thing that we always talk about. Thousands of people can digest your work, but one comment can ruin your evening or even just keep you up at night. In some way, shape, or form, at the heart of it, we all seek approval. Whether it be from our peers, our friends, or our audience, being liked is an inherent part of being human. When you're not liked, be it one person or thousands, the internet can go from feeling like a playful place to feeling downright evil. I've always been in a unique position. The topics that I choose to cover throughout my life have been generally pretty lighthearted. I don't really get into politics. I try not to make sweeping generalizations anymore that isolate groups of people. And if I do indeed do those things these days, I try to do it in a way that doesn't feel attacking or offensive. I've created enough online content in my life to know that the things that I and others say can carry more weight than one can fully grasp. I've probably ruined some days for people out there, something I feel incredibly guilty about even right now. I've likely offended people close to me without even knowing it because they haven't actually called me out for it because we're friends or, or just family members, whoever it may be. I've tweeted things out that directly go at certain people that I don't agree with, something I preach not to do, but I've definitely done myself and something that I feel guilty about. Over the past few weeks, the internet has reared its ugly head in more ways than one. I've trudged through enough controversy in my life to know that you can't react immediately to certain things, especially online. And that's when the regret sinks in, when you react immediately, when you do something that you aren't prepared to defend. I've done this more times than I can count. But over the past couple weeks, I've tried to take a step back and truly think about the consequences of my words and my actions. Because as much as the internet doesn't want to admit it, all of our actions, be them anonymous or not, have consequences. If you've followed me closely throughout the years, you can probably pinpoint a couple instances where things feel contentious between myself and others online. People I've never met outside of the confines of Twitter, but these are people nonetheless. While these occurrences are thankfully few and far between, they always seem to pop up out of nowhere. Largely, I don't have that many regrets of the things that I've written or recorded over the years, though I do have those regrets. I'm proud of the entire catalog of episodes you can find here, and sure there may be some antiquated opinions on things that I didn't understand the ramifications of at the time, but I can't really feel regret over that because I was trying to be honest. There are also those moments of deep connection that I've found with listeners and readers alike, and those are the times that I really just try to embrace, even though I do just kind of let them pass and focus on the negative more than the positive. I look back at the person that I was when I first took to writing online, and I see someone with attributes that I hope I've remedied by now. Naivety immaturity, and honestly, just fear. Luckily, I've had the luxury of getting time afforded to me to grow up and actually understand those consequences to my actions. I know that this is unique and a privileged position to be in. Having a dedicated audience that allows me to make a living doing something I've loved for the past seven years is truly a blessing. 
but each and every one of us, we take to the internet every day to see what's next, what's cool, what's controversial, what's trending. Too often we forget how much weight our words actually carry. I don't care if that weight falls onto one person or entire community of people. That weight is something that each and every one of us must take into account while interacting with each other online. I'm not perfect and I never really aim to be because that wouldn't be very much fun. I have my moments when I think, man, I really probably shouldn't have said that. I've deleted tweets, columns, Reddit comments, and I've had to smooth things over behind the scenes through DMs, something that happens more than I'd like to admit. It's incredibly defeating to know that something you've done has affected someone negatively, which is why the high road is so sparsely taken. The pill of defeat is so hard to swallow because if it wasn't, we'd all be machines with no regard for each other's emotions. As vague as it may sound, the overall message is fairly simple. Just be nice to people online. Anyone who makes that demand that we all be nice to people online, which is currently me, is naturally hypocritical because we can't all be nice at all times. But as long as you come from a place of understanding, most of the time you'll be forgiven. Be understanding, think about how that one thing that you don't actually need to say could keep someone up all night, and honestly, maybe it's best that you just say nothing. That's what I've been trying to do more of. Life is short and tweets are shorter, but unfortunately, both can definitely kick you while you're down. If you liked what you heard today, make sure to subscribe, review, or tell a friend in need about this podcast. By subscribing, you guarantee that each and every episode gets delivered directly to your phone every Sunday morning. You can also follow along on Twitter at Sundayscaries and Instagram, which is at Sunday.scaries, or you can follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Will Defreeze. And remember, always trim the wicks on your scented candles. See you next Sunday.